Welcome to Job Tales, the podcast where you listen to professional stories and find the job that suits you. Did you know that you can study comics and that you can teach comics? Catherine Kelp-Stebbins is associate professor at the University of Oregon. We're about to find out what it takes to become a professor, what is a life dedicated to academia, and what are the best skills for it. Catherine, in Switzerland, you're in Oregon. Uh, so glad to have you. <laughs> the beauty of globalization. Thank you for being part of my podcast. I really wanted to interview you um, as an associate professor in comic studies. And uh, I think it's a very intriguing, interesting, exciting profession you have. And, and that's why I would like you to share it with our listeners. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm really excited to get to talk today. So tell me, what do you do on a daily basis? What is your job about? So my job consists of three parts that are unequally distributed, but I my contract stipulates that I work on research, teaching, and service. And the biggest parts of that break down our research and teaching. So what research looks like for me, because I work in comics studies and literature studies, is a lot of reading, a lot of contacting artists, a lot of working directly with artists and people in the field to get a sense of the work that they do and how they do it. And then a lot of writing on my part, which is my least favorite part, <laughs> because I just sit alone in a lonely room and write and write and write. So I've written one whole book and I've edited a book that I wrote many parts of. And then I've written many articles and book chapters. So that's what my research looks like. I also present at conferences and give lots of talks and interviews, sometimes like this one, <laughs> okay. so, sometimes a lot less fun. <laughs> and then I also personally in my career, I do things like I curate museum exhibitions. So I'll work directly with artists and select pieces from their work and then create an exhibition to be shown in museums. So that's the main part of my research component of my job. In addition, I also teach large classes and sometimes small classes. I advise graduate students. I work directly with a number of different students, and I also teach students how to teach. And then in my service position, I do things like I coordinate our comic studies program at the University of Oregon. I will set up events and lecture series, and I serve on a number of committees and do a lot of little tasks that involve how we make the university run. Do you have any free time in your life? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great question, and um, I'm working on it. I hope to one day have free time in my life. <laughs> right now, I don't quite have a good work-life balance, but I hope that someday soon I will. <laughs> okay, great. Which brings me to my next question, because, you know, by thinking about your, your job, your career and academia and so forth, it sounds exciting, but are there any warning points, let's say like red flags that people should know, especially the young people listening, like what should they expect once they enter academia? 
I think the most important thing to keep in mind is just that every task in academia can expand to take up all of your time. And so when you start being really, really diligent about setting boundaries and making your own schedule and being very clear about what you can and can't do is a really necessary skill set to have for the job. A lot of people, I think, assume that they should say yes to everything that comes their way. And that can often mean that you are working 80 hours a week. So I think time management is the biggest kind of red flag because things like teaching will take all of your time. Like I have every term about 80 students, sometimes more, sometimes less, but each one of those students would really like a lot of time and feedback from me. And I really want to give it to them. But if you imagine just spending five minutes on every student, that's already so much of my week. So the question is, how do you limit how much time you're spending on each task and ensure that you're doing your own research because no one will really make you do your own research except for you. And so that's one thing to just keep in mind is having boundaries between tasks and being really, really clear about what you can and can't do. Okay, yeah, it's a very good point. And can you also tell me a bit of the excursus? How how does it evolve from when you finish your secondary studies into, you know, doing your university years and then, you know, doctorate and so forth, PhD, and then into becoming a, a, a professor and then the stage where you're at today? Yeah, I would love to actually describe the, the U.S. system, which is slightly different from other academic systems, but it has similarities and there are overlaps. What happens is that you, as a undergraduate student, so at the end of your secondary studies, you decide at some point that you want to go into academia or into graduate school. I didn't make that decision until later. I was actually working on a different career path. I really wanted to go into publishing and I was working as a hotel manager to support myself and okay. doing various other things. But at a certain point, I decided I really wanted to go back to graduate school and get a graduate degree. And so in the United States, you apply to graduate schools with essay that you write describing what you want to do and all of your grades from your other schooling. And then you either are or are not accepted. And these days it's pretty competitive in terms of getting into grad school. And then you first go through a master's program and most of those are continuous. So then you continue on to get your PhD or your doctorate. For some of them, they're not. So there are a lot of master's programs that are just two years. Sometimes they're even truncated into one and a half years. And then after that, you either apply or are automatically accepted into a doctoral program, which is usually about four years. And in that time, you start working on your own specific research program, and you ultimately write a dissertation, or in the sciences, you do a slightly different process, but you still do a doctoral defense, and you write a doctoral thesis. So in all of those cases, you're doing research, and you're establishing yourself as a certain kind of professional Then at the end, when you defend your dissertation, 
you go on the job market and that can be really, really (laughs) difficult. You often apply to a lot of jobs and sometimes don't even hear back. The application process itself can be very involved. And at least for my discipline and for a lot of disciplines, the interview process, so when a university wants to interview you, will often consist of at least three different stages. You'll often first submit a very long application that consists of many different parts, your curriculum vitae, your research statement, your writing samples, your teaching philosophy, all of these different things. And then if the university wants to talk to you further, they'll have a first interview, which is usually only about 20 minutes. And then if they make you promote it all the way to the finalist stage, universities will bring two or three finalists to the campus for an interview that is many days. It's usually two or three full days. And during those days, as a finalist, you have to meet with people all day. Even your dinner is an interview and your lunch is an interview. (laughs) Every meal that you have is part of the interview. And then you often give a talk And sometimes you also teach a class and you're being watched this entire time. And then the university will offer the job to one of the finalist applicants. So that's the way that it generally works. And sometimes people like I had one job at a different college before I came to University of Oregon. So a lot of people will go from job to job or sometimes you'll wind up having many, many interviews and not getting a job. Or sometimes you will get one job and just stay there. But generally, the process is really, really lengthy and very involved. And it requires a lot of work at every step. It seems like a lot of work, a lot of patience and uh, motivation, I guess, also to uh, wanting to be part of the the academic uh, world. And so what's the success rate of all those who try? Oh, I wish I had that number off the top of my head. I think it varies a lot based on your field and what it is that you study. I know in my discipline and in the humanities in general, it's pretty low just because there are so many people who want to study arts and literature and there are very, very few jobs out there. There are other jobs that people wind up going into. So sometimes If you don't get a research job, you'll accept a job that is just teaching, or sometimes you'll go into a different part of the university, like as an administrator, or sometimes you will do something related to the university, like working in a library. But the actual number of professors is usually far less than the number of applicants. I see. And then going back now to your specific studies, did you want to study comics or did it just happen along the way? It's a great question. I really, I did not know that this was going to happen. (laughs) And 
I started off doing something completely different. I was studying empire and how going from the Roman Empire to the various European empires in the age of imperialism, you had different ideas of literature and of reading and writing and translation. And so that was originally what I worked on. My master's is actually all about Roman literature under Emperor Augustus. So it is a very different sort of project. And at some point, I realized that I wanted to think about this in a more contemporary way. And I had really wonderful advisors who encouraged me to do something that felt really important to me. And I decided to start thinking about how that question of translation and of transnationalism works when you're also looking at images and whether people are reading images the same everywhere or whether they're reading them differently. And so that really got me back into comics, which I loved as a kid, but I never thought that there was any way it would be part of my academic career. And the job that I currently have actually didn't exist when I first finished my doctorate and was looking for a job. And luckily, my colleague, Ben Saunders, who's a professor here at the University of Oregon, he had created comic studies. And it was the first comic studies program in the United States at a research university. And he, at a certain point, made the argument to the University of Oregon that we needed a professor who's whole job was teaching comics. And I'm just really lucky that I wound up being me. Amazing. So there is, yeah, now students go to lectures and classes about comic studies. And that's all that they do during that, that class, right? That's right. Wow. And it, it's fascinating. Yeah, I never really thought about you know, looking like a, a, at the lens through comics, at the lens of, of a culture or uh, even a, a region or history. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very interesting. Are there many comic studies in different universities, maybe around the world? Or can you mention a few that might be worth mentioning? Yeah, absolutely. I would actually say that Europe generally has better programs because... In Franco-Belgian areas, much earlier, comics were respected as the ninth art, and there have been all sorts of studies done about comics and a lot of scholars who were working on comics really early, people in places like Belgium at the University of Leuven and also places in France. And so it wasn't until much later in the United States that comic studies became a more respected field of study. We now have a lot of programs at places like, in addition to University of Oregon, there's a big program at Ohio State University, Michigan State University, the University of Portland State University, and San Diego State University. So there are a lot more programs than there used to be. And then there are also programs in art schools. So the California College of Arts has an entire curriculum where they teach comics, both from a studies perspective, but also from a practitioner perspective. So students learn both how to read comics, but also how to make them. And that's true of a lot of other art schools around the country, like the Savannah College of Art and Design, or the School of Visual Arts in New York. So there's 
a little difference in terms of whether the program is just about research and studying comics, which is what ours is currently about, or if it's more about making comics, which you'll find at various art schools in the United States. Okay, I see. You were talking about writing a lot and also being alone a lot when writing. Is there another like little reflex to warn warn people of what to expect? Meaning, you know, if you need to write, you, you, when we were preparing the this podcast episode, you were saying that, that how important it is to write and to write articles and publish them in order to to keep your job. Can you tell me a bit more about this and how it works in the United States in particular? Yes, absolutely. And I would be really happy also, I taught writing and I've taught writing skills. So this is something I can talk about a lot. But I think one of the myths of writing, especially in academia, where we study writing, and so we have this idea of what makes, you know, beautiful or great writing. And I think that one of the things I stress to my graduate students, and that I always have to keep in mind for myself is that the most effective writing is writing that is done. <laughs> and okay. so it doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful or the perfect word, as long as you've written it, it's going to be more effective than if you sit there looking at your blank screen and just worrying and worrying and worrying about how to write this. And so what we have to do in my profession is we'll write an article And then we'll submit it to a journal or we'll write a book and submit it to a publisher. And oftentimes those original articles or book manuscripts will either get rejected or they'll get what's called R&R, which means revise and resubmit. And what that does is it's the editors of the journal or the editors at a publisher, it looks through your work and tell you, you need to change these things. And I actually really like that process. I think it's really important because it, it gets you out of that lonely place where you're writing just alone in your own head. And it actually makes it a conversation where somebody else is reading your work and they're telling you how to make it better. And so then you'll often revise your original article or your book and you'll resubmit it and then you'll get more feedback. And oftentimes for a journal article, this might take up to a year. And for a book manuscript, this can take like four or five years of just going back and forth where you write something and then you get feedback and you send it in again. And they're also subjected to what's called blind review, where people will read your work and then give you feedback and you won't know who they are and they won't know who you are. So that's also a big part of the process is that we have scholars reading each other's work without necessarily knowing who each other are and then giving feedback that helps you to revise. And so I know for me, I really appreciate that process and I participate in it as well. I'm often reviewing other people's work anonymously and trying to give as much helpful feedback as I possibly can. But the main thing I would say for anyone who wants to go into academia is that it's really important. You don't have to love writing, but you have to write. 
<laughs> and it's really important that you do this every day, that you start writing as a practice the same way you would do anything, like an athletic pursuit, right? If you want to lift weights, if you want to do yoga, you just have to practice it every day. And it doesn't mean you will ever love writing or think you're a great writer. But if you're writing for 20 minutes a day, it becomes something that you can just do as part of your job. And a lot of people I work with, and I can say this for myself as well, will procrastinate because we don't want to write because writing can be really daunting if you don't have anything there and you're just trying to write something beautiful or perfect. And if instead you just sit down every day and force yourself to get out, you know, two paragraphs, like 500 words, just put it on the page, it'll actually become something that you're capable of doing as your job. And I think that's really difficult for people and something that can be really daunting when you're first starting in this profession. You know, I think about technological progress, AI, VR, etc. Is there a worry in the academia that the influence of AI, the technological progress and so forth will have on to, for example, writing a, an article? Of course. But I think the thing that I keep in mind and I know this is not true of everyone I work with. I always keep in mind that academia has always been worried about the influence of outside ideas and technology. This has been true, you know, this was a fear about like the church. It was a fear about all sorts of different innovations that we've had throughout time. It was an, a fear about Wikipedia for when I was starting my academic career, everyone was terrified that Wikipedia would make academia obsolete because people would all just go onto Wikipedia and they would never have to come to classes and they wouldn't learn anything. And I think the thing that really gives me hope that my colleague who is a professor of philosophy keeps saying is that we have been doing this form of knowledge work for millennia. This is a long tested, tried and true way of studying, which is to really learn something to use different processes of scientific inquiry and development, and then to teach those to others. And so I think if we just take confidence in the fact that academia has been around for a very long time, and if it goes away, you know, we won't know when it's going to happen. And so I think instead, we just need to remember that we know what we're doing. I've been doing this job now for, this is my 10th year as a professor. It's my 16th year in the academy. So these are things I, I've been working on and I know how to do them. And I'm hoping that we have students who still want to know how to do them and who still care about learning these things and who still care about how we study things and how we learn things. And so I think that there's always going to be a lot of insecurity about innovation and about change. And for me, that's less of an issue. Like I have students who use AI, I have students who use chat GPT, and it's often not as good as the students who aren't doing that for a lot of reasons. And so I think until students really understand what they're doing and how they're doing it, it's not really a threat to the same sort of knowledge work and the same sort of writing that we've been teaching people to do and learning how to do for so long. 
Okay, and that's a good point, for sure. Now, 16 years in the academia, in hindsight, you know, what would you have changed? I think when I started 16 years ago, when I first went into graduate school, I didn't have a very clear sense of why I was doing what I was doing. And it meant that I often missed certain opportunities to network, to build my online profile, to build a certain kind of portfolio for myself, because I was really interested in a lot of things. And I was really curious. And I actually like that about myself. But I definitely wish that I'd had a better sense of why I was going into academia and why I wanted to be an academic. And so I think if I could go back and counsel myself, I would make myself do things like just create a kind of strategic plan and be able to articulate where I wanted to be in five years or what I wanted to be doing and why. And I think that would have helped me a lot with the specific endeavors I was taking on because I often would take on a lot of extra work because I was unsure about where I was going to go with it, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Awesome. Wow. So interesting. I don't know if you have any any final message to to deliver, to convey. I would say mostly the best thing about academia to me is that it's really about curiosity. And if you're someone who's curious and you're someone who wants to learn about the world and be with other people who want to learn about the world, then it really is a great place to be. Otherwise, it's not a great place to make money. It's not a great place to have a lot of free time. So I think that I would just say, if you're curious, like look into it, meet people, talk to people, talk to professors, talk to graduate schools, get a sense of what it's like. But if you want to make money, definitely don't go into academia. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Catherine. It's been uh, utmost interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Keep listening to my podcast. All comments are welcome. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just type Job Tales Podcast. Tales is T A L E S. Ciao for now. <laughs>